Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special birthday episode of the Proceedings Podcast is Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine and the Naval Institute's Co-Director of Outreach and Associate Editor at the USNI Press, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury. Hello, guys. Happy birthday. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday and good morning. morning. 146 years ago today, the Naval Institute was born. Yes. Here uh, on the grounds of the Naval Academy in the Chemistry and Physics Building, uh, as noted in uh, today's On This Date in Naval History, Lieutenant Charles Belknap organized a meeting. It was pre- presided over by... Um, Admiral John Warden, who was the superintendent of the Naval Academy at the time, and it was organized probably, we think, by uh, Commodore Foxhall Parker. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a big day. It is, and uh, I can say neither of you guys look a day over 150, so just, <laughs> you're good to go. You're too kind. You're Spoken as the young guy in the room. Well, let's, but let's talk about the environment uh, under which this was created. So before the Civil War, there was a thing called the Lyceum, and they were created to do, you know, make the Navy particularly better. They had a pretty impressive history for their short existence. They had a magazine called uh, Naval Magazine, which is pretty straightforward, yes. right? No, no, no esoteric in that title. They didn't beat around the bush. They didn't beat then. around the bush. Um, and they did some, some things. They got rid of flogging. You know, that was an issue they addressed. They uh, eliminated the judicial either go to prison or join the Navy matrix. Um, They started to create the fit rep system that, as we've talked about, the insurgents took to its next, you know, what they called waiting for a dead man's shoes. They were addressing the Navy's fit rep system. Basically, their issue was um, you want to have command before you have to retire. And it wasn't assumed that you would have command necessarily. There was no deliberate career path towards command. So they, they dealt with that issue. And when the Civil War rolled around, Annapolis and some of the other places that they had, what were they calling these things? Uh, branches Branches and of the Lyceum all went away because people were concerned with uh, more pressing matters called uh, let's not divide the nation and let's uh, have the Union win the Civil War. Okay, so we fast forward now to 1873. 1873, uh, Warden, who had been uh, commanding officer of the USS Monitor uh, in the early uh, 1860s, uh, you know, 11 years hence, he's the Naval Academy superintendent. Well, remind the people what the Monitor was. Yeah, Monitor, the yep, ironclad of, uh, of uh, Battle of Hampton Roads fame, uh, the, the, the famous uh, class with the, uh, clash with the, um, the Merrimack or the CSS Virginia. Virginia, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, which was a kind of a draw, but it was the first time that two ironclad ships met in combat. And so uh, uh, Warden was the commanding officer of that ship. And then 11 years later, he's an admiral. He's the superintendent of the Naval Academy, and the Navy is going backwards in time and backwards in technology. And there's this group of 15 officers here at the Naval Academy. Uh, they get together on nine August, uh, sorry, nine October, uh, 1873, in the Chemistry and Physics Building, and they have the first meeting of the Naval Institute. This idea that we need to create a um, an organization uh, dedicated to scientific knowledge uh, for the advancement of the Navy. So I think, Lord, uh, when we do our outreach briefs, this piece of history is important. So a couple of things that I think uh, that I emphasize with Warden is the fact that uh, before that Battle of Hampton Roads, right, two um, northern ships of sail are sunk 
by the CSS Virginia, right, in a matter of hours. And the third was at anchor and was going to be attacked, right? So um, that shows you right there that difference of technology and Warden sees this and then the two ironclads fight and there's a draw. And then the other point I emphasize is you got to think about what's going on around the world at that time that they see. So Britain, the world empire at the time, far flung, they're starting to combine ships of sail with, you know, this ironclad technology and blending steam propulsion so they can take advantage of the sail to get to where they need to go. And at the same time, they can leverage the modern technology and the uh, defense that it provides. So I think Warden, that's part of the frustration. Warden sees this and sees the Navy trying to divest out of this technology. And, you know, that's one of those key discussions that I think gets teed up. Well, so for members there's a, who have access to our digital archives, which we tout um, quite a bit on the show as a benefit of membership. It's an amazing resource. Every issue of proceedings from the first one, which we'll describe during the show in 1874 until the present day. But there is a great article about this subject uh, that captures the highlights in in appropriate detail from the first hundred years. So this was published in October of 1973. So uh, for those of you doing the home version of the Proceedings Podcast, if you have access to your laptop um, and you are a member, get into the archives and look at the October 1973 issue. And there's an article called, what's the exact title, Paul? The First Hundred Years Were. The First Hundred Years Were. Uh, are. R, 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 dot, dot, dot. Captain Roy C. Smith, the third U.S. Naval Reserve, retired. Yeah, so. October 73. So, to this point that Paul was just talking about, and, and Bill as well. Um, so I think it's important to, to read this passage because it really does set the tone for what we do now as well. So it says, as usual, after all our wars before and since, the immediate post-Civil War years saw an emasculation good word, of the Navy, that had been the key to victory. Where others profited from the Monitor and the Virginia, the United States not only refused to build new ironclad steam-propelled ships, but also sold off or laid up most of the fleet that had been the world's most powerful in 1865. At the time of the Virginia's affair in November of 1873, when the American public screamed for action against Spain, we could only muster a dozen or so wooden-hulled ships carrying muzzle-loading smooth-bore guns. These relics had a maximum fleet speed of about, wait for it, four knots. (laughs) Their crews contained more foreign nationals than American citizens. So there is a great scene setter for the atmosphere that, compelled these naval professionals, the 15 as we reverently call them, including Foxhall, Parker, Belknap, and Admiral Warden, to assemble on the early evening of October 9th, 1873. And as we've said, they met in the Chemistry and Physics Building. In this article, there's a great picture of what the yard looked like at that time. Maryland Avenue is a dirt road that goes all the way to the waterline, and the waterline goes to about where present-day um, Michelson and Chauvenet are. You know, there is no mid-store parking lot. There's no soccer field or Dewey Field, um, no sailing center out there. There are piers, and what you'll note on the piers is there's an assembly of square riggers. There's one looks like a paddle boat, and then out in the Severn, there what looks to be uh, a, a monitor or a, you know, a, an ironclad, but but not a weaponized one. Um, so you can imagine a superintendent, Admiral Warden, walking around the yard who made his professional reputation as a kick-ass, you know, monitor ironclad warfighter, 
So he's very much wedded to the axiom that technology equals victory. And now the irony is the public has not supported the recapitalization of the fleet. Certainly the Hill hasn't supported that. But they're like, do something about the Spanish threat, right? So this is the lesson that we learn time and time again. This is the same lesson that, again, in the archives, 1948, then Lieutenant Colonel Cushman, later Commandant of the Marine Corps, Cushman is talking about the Air Force saying we don't need a Marine Corps. The Marine Corps that won you the Pacific Theater. So here's the Navy saying, you're welcome, America, for this thing called the United States. And now where's the support? It was non-existent. So under all of these atmospherics, the Naval Institute was created. All right. So the next progression then is they get together, right? This is the part I love is this power of convening that we call it, right? So they get together and they start to uh, discuss these matters of professional interest, they call it, right? Um, probably things that are frustrating them and where they can envision these four. I think they're the thought leaders at the time. Uh, and the interesting thing I also find is they're on active duty, right? These aren't retired dudes that are off on the sideline. Well, there's hey, one academic guys. in the 15. Right. Um, but you're right. These are all active duty. I mean, obviously, the names we've said, you have Lieutenant Belknap. What was Foxhall Parker's rank? Do we uh, know? Commodore. Commodore, right. Yep. And, and then one-star uh, warden. So the battle rhythm uh, of what you were just talking about is somebody would write a paper. Yes. And then that person would present the paper. Yeah. So I like that. Right. right. So it, yeah, it's it, got this, you know, I was thinking about this PhD, dis- defending my dissertation. So I just don't write this thing and throw it out there. Um, I have to bring this up, you know, present it to my peers. And then, you know, uh, and then we're going to, they're going to come at me with, you know, I'm going to have to defend my position. We're going to debate. We're going to discuss. Um, and then from there, I think after that's done, that's when you get into the publishing part, when it's into the magazine and socialized even broader. Yeah, so they, they have four meetings in the first year. And at the end of the fourth meeting, uh, they essentially have a stack of papers that have been pr- presented, right? And then it's a question of what do we do with these papers? And then comes the idea, well, let's publish them. And they become published in the minutes and proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute, hence the name proceedings, which is stuck with us. Uh, so it's it's the volume one, uh, edition one is or number one is uh, is uh, 1874, but although it was really actually printed in in uh, 1875. Uh, but as you said, Paul, that you know these are papers that were presented publicly, as you as you mentioned, like sort of like a, a dissertation, and then. You know, here in proceedings, our, our readers and members know that our letters to the editor is called comment and discussion. It's not called letters to the editor because the original, uh, you know, comments on an article were actual comments, right? It was comments and discussion. Somebody took notes on those comments that were made in the meeting when a, when an, uh, an author presented their paper, and then it was you know written down as sort of minutes of the meeting. Uh, so that term, comment and discussion, continues to this day, even though it's now more of a letters to the editor, which has expanded online into being, you know, our discuss platform with our online platform. Yeah. So I find myself balancing a lot of time, you know, um, as I'm out presenting, I, I started to get heavily into champion the writing piece. Uh, and I've not backed off per se, but now I'm, you know, there's a speaking piece of this too. So in our own mantra, right, dare to think, um, read, and then, you know, speak and write, right? So the speaking goes to this discussion part. So it's not just, hey, write some pieces, get them out there. And then we're back and forth on the blogs, right? That's a piece of the modern forum. But this this opportunity to get together, convene, 
someone proposes an idea, frustration, whatever it is to either advance the professional interests of the Navy across things or enhance our understanding of the Navy. And then we discuss that just makes the thought or the concept even stronger. Yeah. We talk a lot about uh, one of the early articles, which was uh, presented by Admiral Stephen B. Luce, or then uh, I think it was Captain Stephen B. Luce, later Admiral, uh, who became the first president of the Naval War College. And, and that, that, so as they attempted to scale this up, so 15 men meet in October 1873 here in Annapolis at the Naval Academy, and then they create branches in other places, including Newport, Rhode Island. And Stephen B. Luce is, is the president of one of those branches, the Newport branch. He has this idea and, and writes it in a paper called War Schools, which is published in, I think, 1885. Um, and then it, he goes on to become the first president of the Naval War College after, uh, after Congress sort of got the idea and said, yeah, we, we probably do need to have advanced schools beyond just undergraduate education. They create, they, they have the funding for and they create the Naval War College. And Stephen B. Luce, who had come up with the idea for it, is named the first president of the War College. Yeah. So you, you, you did jump ahead there. So Stephen B. Luce, his first interface with the Naval Institute is on, uh, 28 October in, uh, well, the first year of his existence. So Stephen B. Luce is Naval Institute number four. So they invite him to Annapolis to brief this paper. His later, the war stories paper did lead to the creation of the Naval War College, as you've said, in, in the mid-1880s. But before that, he was in the first issue of the proceedings of the United States Naval Institute, talking about the need for a merchant marine training track. And uh, so uh, he was Naval Institute member number four. So he's sort of like Ringo joining the Beatles. Um, And so just because it's the birthday, and we, we were talking about were they all active duty, in fact, they weren't. Again, this is in from the article we were citing from October of uh, 1973. But let's just say uh, who was at that first meeting. So the founding fathers, as it says in this article, were not only a distinguished, but also a mixed group. In addition to Warden, Commodore Parker, and Lieutenant Belknap, they included Commanders Edward, Terry, and S. Dana Green, who'd been Warden's XO and acting CO in the Monitor, Chief Engineer C.H. Baker, Medical Director Phillips Lansdale, Pay Inspector James Murray, Lieutenant Commanders P.E. Harrington, J.E. Craig, Casper F. Goodrich, P.H. Cooper, and C.J. Train, Lieutenant Willard H. Bronson, and Captain McLean Tilton, U.S. Marine Corps. By the fourth meeting in December, the roster had grown to 36 members, including a whole bunch from Washington, D.C. at that point. So there you go. It's set, and then they invite Warden. Warden briefs this Merchant Marines uh, uh, idea. Loose. I'm sorry. Loose uh, invents the, or briefs out this Merchant Marine idea, which in turn leads to the creation of Sunny Maritime and in time, Kings Point. And then more impactfully to the U.S. Navy Marine Corps, they created the Naval War College, of which you've already mentioned, Bill, Stephen B. Luce is the first president based on his article, War Schools, which Paul and I use as part of our brief when we go out to the fleet and talk about impact, outcomes. From the very beginning, the Naval Institute is about outcomes. Not an alumni association, not ledge affairs per se, although these guys were legislatively savvy, right? How do you recapitalize the fleet? 
well, you better have know how budgets are, you know, built and and come about and passed and so forth and so on. You can't be recklessly naive of these matters. But these guys were not politicos. Their motivation was purely get ready for the emerging Spanish threat. Yep. And when you look at that list of the first group, you know, you see that expertise that they need, right? The pay, the technology, all those kind of things that are, you know, the, the experience in combat with these modern technologies, all that's brought, you know, um, to make that discussion relevant and fruitful. Here from that article, uh, talking about professionalism, the Naval Institute, in the founding of the Naval Institute, the original concept was to develop new ideas and to disseminate them throughout the Naval Service. Consequently, its first constitution stated that whenever papers read before the society and the discussions growing out of them shall accumulate in quantities to make 100 pages printed matter, they shall be prepared for issue in pamphlet form and one copy of the same be sent by the treasurer to each member and one to each ex officio member. So that's this is the idea of publishing these papers, right? This is where it turns into Proceedings Magazine. Great point, Bill. And, and to the, that, the battle rhythm of Proceedings Magazine has varied through the years. And if you, again, access the archives, just look at it, the readout year by year, and you can count the number of issues. If you just type in a year, what you get in the archives, the search, search functionality is the covers. And so from the beginning, 1874 until 1958, a couple of notable things. First off, there were no pictures like we have today. The first copy of Proceedings that had a picture on the cover was in 1953. Before then, it was basically both the Naval Academy crest and the Naval Institute crest or logo, however the proper uh, label for that would be. So they were co-located on the cover, which shows you the sort of DNA interwoven between the Naval Academy and the Naval Institute based on the fact that it was founded here on the yard by the superintendent of the organization at that time. The other thing is it started with, as you said, you the tripwire was 100 pages, right? And boom, now we'll publish it and destroy it. There was no editorial calendar like, okay, on the 13th of every month, we got to have, you know, camera ready copy or blue lines like what your team does now, Bill. Um, certain parts of the month are pretty intense about, look, we got to get this thing buttoned up to the publisher you know, printed back and distroed, so forth and so on. So they didn't operate like that. Right. It was more organic. Yeah. It was more or less a quarterly uh, until 1919. And then it became a monthly journal. And then uh, until, uh, or until, I'm sorry, until uh, I think it was 1916. And then in, in uh, 20 or 1970, 2017, just two years ago is when we started uh, proceedings today, which is just now online content. So uh, we have a battle rhythm that is three or four stories a week or articles, commentaries a week, in addition to the monthly magazine, which comes out on the first of the month, which is all online as well. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Continuously that, evolving yes. to meet what we call warden's intent. Okay, Paul, what do you got? Uh, well, I was going to throw over to Bill on this. I want to cover down on the history of the press, but before that, we get into the Kind of first, how do the essay contests um, come around? Because that's covered in the article as well. The, you know, the need or not need, but the uh, opportunity to offer essay contests around that we still do now. Yeah. So, yeah, almost from its earliest days, this this is uh, back to that article from 1973. From its earliest days of the Institute, its essay contests have been one of its most important functions. The idea of such a competition was first proposed by Lieutenant Commander Alan Brown at the 9 May 1878 meeting in Annapolis. 
He moved that a committee of three be appointed to devise a scheme to prepare a prize to be offered to such a member of the Institute who shall present a paper which shall be deemed the best of those selected, uh, said prize to amount to $100 in value. Uh, so nowadays we're up to, for the, that, that first prize or first uh, essay contest became uh, what we now call the general prize essay contest, which now has a first prize of $6,000 a year. And the second prize, I think, is uh, 3500 and third prize is, uh, is $2,500. So for, but, but $100 uh, in, in 18, 1878, uh, I wonder what that compares to it is six thousand dollars. Today's dollars, I'm yeah. sure it's pretty good. It, it's probably fairly some, close, right? Yeah, yeah, right and so Mahan, uh, did he win the first one? Um, who? I mean, he he was a winner at one point, right? I mean, names like Alfred Thayer Mahan, um, names like uh, Ernest King have won the uh, General Prize Essay Contest. So uh, let's see what it says here. Who was the winner? Lieutenant Commander Alan Brown who suggested the contest was first place, first place. And then two honorable mention papers were those of Lieutenant Commander Casper Goodrich and Commander Alfred Thayer Mahan, a good omen for the future. Right. And I, I think Mahan won it in a subsequent year. So, you know, these are the great names. These are, they're, they, they have statues, their names are on buildings. This is the heritage of the organization and what we preserve to this day, which is outcomes. Um, things like most recently, we had an article about, and get me the time frame right, Bill, here, but uh, the, the how we'd wandered off from the traditional Navy Jack on bows of ships, and it had become sort of this don't tread on me flag. And somebody flagged that that was improper and not historically in accordance with our traditions. And as a function of that article, we can lay claim to the fact that the Navy went back to the Navy Jack. Went back to its Jack. I think that was in... Uh appeared in proceedings in August 2018, and I think by November last year, the Navy had gone back to the traditional Jack. So, you know, you, that's a small thing, right. but a thing nevertheless. We've done things recently um, about the need for aviation bonuses as a retention tool. And as if, you know, again, we're not laying, we're not saying cause and effect, but it does set a tone where subsequent to that article and a podcast discussion about that topic, the Navy sends out an instruction about a new bonus structure, you know? And so this is where day in and day out, we're dealing with serious matters. And this is where our call to action to the fleet is, this is the forum, not classified, but a forum of great and consequential change, nevertheless. Yeah, so there's, uh, I think uh, some people get hung up on, hey, I got to propose or challenge something significantly. Sometimes the ideas you bring up just aren't uh, new groundbreaking. Hey, I got this new concept for you know war fighting or tactics. Sometimes it's that uh, fleet pulse of what's going on in the and the, you know, here's the pressures on the fleet that broader decisions are bringing in. So in many cases, some of these articles, um, for example, John Cordell is writing extensively about, you know, sleep and circadian rhythms. And that has gained, you know, the conversation has started. So not everything you write about is just going to pop and, you know, the Navy's going to, you know, throw yeah, the rudder over. But that discussion is in the wake of the McCain and Fitzgerald mishaps. Yes. That's why we're talking about sleep. Yep. Because obviously those crews were tired. You know, it's sort of the uh, the surface warfare source of pride to deprive yourself of sleep and yep. stay on the bridge forever. And and so, what are the what are the traps of doing that? So that's why that conversation. It yep. is, as you say, it's 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 not a direct 
tactical thing, but it does affect safety, readiness, so Absolutely. forth and so on, right? So, so these conversations a, are having. They're going yeah. after the culture piece, right? So, and culture takes time, right? You got to, you know, explore and discuss and debate the value and belief systems that are under there and kind of, you know, hey, here's why these are misplaced in a modern Navy, maybe back. And how here. do we get here? That's why, right. Why, why are we sleep deprived? That's right. Why do we do yeah. the things we is do? Is this a manpower issue? Pattern? Is it just a cultural issue? Is it a fit rep 500, yes. you know, thing? What is it? And sometimes right? what people write about, I think, um, and I, I was told this when I was a command mass chief by one of the flag officers, like sometimes it's not that you come at me and, and challenge what I'm thinking or what the organization's doing, but sometimes the things you propose reinforce what we think we think we want to be doing. And then you get that fleet pulse or that person that comes behind and strengthens um, the decision in that favor and can, and can shift it over. So um, I think those are all great things. And the essay contest just – it attracts a different group, right? So some aren't just necessarily internally motivated to write, but you throw a couple thousand dollars down there, that may be the catalyst to get that one idea out there. Yeah, and I think oftentimes what happens with uh, you know the, the prize money, for example, is that you know to write a winning essay, especially if you're young on active duty, you're on a ship or a submarine, you're you know on sea duty or maybe even on shore duty, and you're trying to balance your life out a little bit to write a winning essay you got to give up a couple weekends right this isn't something that you just rip off you know when you get home at, at uh, you know eight, 1800 some night and you're done by by 2000 and that's it you know and so you've won a you know five thousand dollar prize for an essay contest this is you know it takes some dedication and some effort and some research and you got to read what other people have written dig into proceedings uh from past years find out what other winning essays look like uh, you know, maybe interview some people. So you, you may give up a couple weekends to do that. And, and that could be de a deterrent from writing, right? But if you, if you have the chance of winning, you know, $5,000, $3,000, $6,000, uh, and the chances of winning the general prize essay contest for the last couple of years have generally been about, you know, if you enter, you have about a one in a hundred chance because we get about a hundred essays every year for that contest. So your chances of winning $6,000 are one in a hundred. Your chances of winning you know, a prize, several thousand dollars or three in a hundred, your chances of getting published if you enter that contest are probably 10 or 15% because we publish not just the winners, but also probably the top 10 to 15 articles in some format or another. So it's, it's a nice incentive to give up a couple weekends to say, Hey, honey, you know, I, I'm going to really dig into this because it's important. Right. Um, but to that point, so you get the money is, is one thing, right? And as you said, if that's the thing that gets you off the couch or turn off sports center for a while, then so be it. But beyond that, the impact quotient is unrivaled, right? So let's just do, go by the numbers. Subscription uh, circulation of proceedings, the print magazine is about 54,000. And in any, any given month at usna.org, we do between 450 and 500,000 uniques. Um, if USNI News is about 1.2 to 1.7 million uniques, you talk about our social channels, you talk about the fact that we can prove that your piece will be read by people who matter service chiefs, secretariats, requirements officers. COs, nation, you know, fleet wide, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So to your point, the exercise of writing forces you to get your story straight. You can extemporaneously be yelling at the TV or having a heated conversation with your shipmates in the wardroom or in the, on the mess decks. But now sit down and give me a thousand words on your point of view. 
Try that. Just try the exercise of that. And what you will find, and don't say I'm not a good writer. I, I say BS to that. But in the exercise of that, what it does is it forces you to get your thoughts straight. And that's a great exercise for every sailor, every Marine, and every Coast Guardsman fleet-wide. Yep. And I uh, so pity also Chris Miner, who was the Enlisted Prize Essay Contest winner this year. He has, uh, I mean, I, I covered this impact piece that you speak about right there, Ward. So, uh, you know, um, we do the podcast with his article about warrior toughness and then his concerns with damage control readiness in the fleet. Um, obviously we share that on social media circles. And then he sends me a text with a screenshot of an exchange between him and this guy that I don't know who he is. Um, but basically, Hey, enjoy the podcast. You know, this person comes in and says, great to hear the fleet is focusing on warrior toughness. Um, and then Chris comes back and he's like, Hey, thanks for reading and taking time to listen. And then this guy comes back who I find out is a mass chief, um, comes out and says, Hey, yes, had a great discussion and sh- showed this to the SECNAV this morning. Hope, you know, and encouraged him to read it. Hope he gets a chance to read it soon. So within a, a matter of a week, you win an essay contest, come on a podcast. And now a mass chief has connected you. Not only does the mass chief resonate to your article and give you kudos, but now he's talking to the secretary of the Navy and encouraging him to read that article. So that's, once again, that's powerful on the reach of that writing. Yeah, so two years ago, the general prize essay contest, I think it was second prize winner, uh, was uh, an article, a hard-hitting article, uh, and it was in, written in the wake of the Fitzgerald and McCain uh, collisions. It was called "The Rot." There's rot in our hulls by Lieutenant J.G. at the time, Daniel Stephanus, uh, who has written a number of other articles and one other prize con- you know, contest with us. Um, but you know, his piece was he was a surface warfare officer. He was recognizing some of the problems that led to the the collisions of those two ships. Uh, he wrote a very very hard hitting piece. And then, uh, the, the, the chief of naval personnel, now the VCNO, Admiral Burke, reached out and said, I want this guy on my staff because we got some problems that we have to solve. We have some personnel issues, training, education, uh, you know, career path issues. How do I get this kid on my staff? And so for the last two years or a year and a half, uh, Lieutenant Stephanus has been working on a, um, a high level team that's been proposing solutions for the chief of naval personnel and, and reporting directly to Admiral Burke. Um, over the years, and, and uh, Pete and uh, our, our CEO, Pete, and my predecessor would tell you stories of the many, many, many uh, speechwriters for CNOs, commandants of the Marine Corps, secretaries of the Navy, secretaries of defense, who have been proceedings authors, right? Because often when they get to that position, they go, hey, I, I need a really good speechwriter. I haven't had to have a speechwriter before. I've always sort of won it or I've had a staff writer, whatever. But I need somebody who really can write at the strategic level and get points across uh, and do it quickly, right? And so they often reach out to the, the senior staff here at the Naval Institute and say, I'm looking for a speechwriter. Is there a, you know, lieutenant, lieutenant commander, major, lieutenant colonel, um, you know, commander, captain level who writes a lot, who writes well and, and is, uh, you know, consistently sort of on the edge of where the Navy or the Marine Corps needs to go. And, uh, you know, there, there are dozens of examples of, you know, senior level speechwriters who have been here. So whiners need not apply, right? I mean, this is a cautionary tale. If you're writing just to complain, for its own sake, then you probably don't want to enter the forum in this way. If you're writing to affect the outcome, like Daniel Stefanis, then this is the place for you. 
are, we are created for change agents, people who really do want to see it through, who want to make the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard finer, as we say, in our collateral. But let's just say more lethal, more rewarding. Every element of a professional military career is what happens here. And that includes victory, right? Ultimately, we're here to ensure that we prevail in future conflicts. That's it. And that's knife in the teeth. That's why we exist. You know, you want to paint it as a sleepy sort of academic thing. That's not what the Naval Institute's all about. And that's not what our call to action is to the warfighters who are currently manning the airplanes and the ships and the submarines and on the SEAL teams and the platoons out there in harm's way. You know, this is your organization, just like the three of us were actively involved when we were on active duty. Now we sort of manage the forum so that those who followed us can do the same thing. And again, the motivation, as we've stated with our brief history um, sort of set up here on our birthday, the 146th birthday of the Naval Institute, is this is an organization that has created outcomes that have made the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard finer, better. And so now this is your call to action to do the same thing. And we live, as Bill described, the means by which we uh, get word out to the fleet has morphed based on technology and the way that media goes these days. We are catching up fast. You know, as we've talked about on the show, we launched the redesigned website last spring, and that has just been a log jam that was freed up. And now Bill's team does content uh, battle rhythm now in a way that's more immediate. And, you know, it's not just a repeat of the magazine, print magazine each month, and we're just getting started on how, you know, we're doing just so the audience knows we're doing strategic planning. We started yesterday, we have it this afternoon and tomorrow, that is all about warden's intent. You know, members ha- be of good cheer and, and potential members, your Naval Institute is not satisfied that we're doing the mission right in spite of all of our successes subjectively, objectively, metrically so far. We're shifting into the next gear. We're in Studio P today because Studio C is a, a loud mess because we're building the conference center. They're actually starting with jackhammers and everything else. Yeah, I was just gonna I was gonna say that Studio P for for Paul's office and uh, yeah, we've got uh, Whiting Turner Construction Team is here in force. There's backhoes and there's uh, jackhammers. Uh, tearing down part of the building an overhang out there they're ripping up parking lot they're starting to put uh, shovels into the ground i mean this is real we broke broke ground you know ceremonially a couple weeks ago uh, but the real construction is underway right now and it's a bit like being in the shipyard it's kind of fun uh, my staff is looking out the window, you know, looking at what's going the on out there. Shaking, the building shaking. shaking. Yeah, the building down. is shaking. I've taken the pictures off the wall so they don't shatter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Seriously. I, yeah, I no, that. it's, uh, it's, but it's kind of fun. And, and this is, uh, and Pete mentioned this yesterday in our strategic planning meetings. Um, he, he, somebody asked him, do you really believe that this thing's going to be done, the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center, uh, by Christmas time, uh, probably actually a little bit earlier than that, of 2020? So 
15, 14 months from now uh, is the projected end of, uh, of construction. And Pete said, yes, because the contract is written so that <laughs> if Whiting Turner doesn't have it done by then, they start to lose money. So, you know, they're motivated. It's an $8 billion a, a year company, a big, big construction company with a good record of getting stuff done uh, on time, getting the ship out of the yards on time. And, and this and, is where having a CEO who went in uniform, managed massive budget, budgets, yeah. like the budget for the Iraq war, yeah. comes in very handy. Yes. Definitely. I wanted to add just uh, one thing uh, uh, to anybody out there who has not written for proceedings yet or has not written for our blogs. If you've thought about it, but, uh, I'm not so sure if I'm good enough or, you know, I was I wasn't an English major. I wasn't a poli sci major. Um, do it right. And, and we have a, I have a team of uh, the, the total editorial staff for proceedings and naval history and the blogs is six editors. My, my total team is 10 people, including one and a half of them are, are administrative people. So it's a very small staff. But the six editors uh, and I'm really proud to say that every and I, we get these emails constantly from from young authors, petty officers, JOs. Uh, who write for us and then they, they, they send us thank you notes and they say, Hey, you know, Jenny was fantastic. She took my 3000 words, cut it by 700 words, which I thought was impossible and actually made it better in the cutting process. And it looks beautiful in the magazine. Thanks to our design team. Uh, but that is what we do, right? And, and, and we do it because, as you mentioned, Ward, you wrote for proceedings. Paul, you did as well. Uh, and I did as a lieutenant and, and then on, uh, and, and I was always amazed that the editorial team here took my rough draft and turned it into something much better. So we're not looking for, you know, beautiful prose with incredible vocabulary words. We're looking for the ideas of people who are in the sea services about how to make the sea services better. You know, whether it's a tactical issue, whether it's a platform issue, a technology issue, a personnel issue, a leadership thing. Uh, I, I'd point out, uh, in the, uh, the October issue of proceedings, uh, there's a great leadership uh, forum piece by a young Marine, which is one of the better leadership. I mean, leadership forums always good, right? And it's, yep. it's, it's evergreen because you always need to be reading about and thinking about and learning from other people about leadership. But this one particular one is just one of the, the, you know, very best ones we've, I've read in quite some time. It's a fun read. Uh, and it's just called Micromanagement is Not an Option by Captain Michael Hansen, uh, U.S. Marine Corps, starting on page 72. It's a terrific, terrific read. Um, gives, you know, his, his perspective before he was in a leadership position. Well, when I get to be a platoon commander or when I get to be a company commander, I'm not going to micromanage my guys. They're, they're real men. They're, and then he gets in front of the, the formation and he, he goes out in the woods, you know, out on patrol for a, uh, a training exercise. And some of his guys don't bring some essential pieces of gear because he didn't inspect that beforehand. Right. And then his company commander goes, Hey, what's up with your platoon? How come you're not squared away? And he realizes, Oh yeah, there is a reason that you have to do some of these inspections. You have to get down in the knickers until they prove that, that you can trust them, right? And that's just, I mean, that's a timeless lesson that we've all learned about, you know, well, I'm going to trust my guys to take care of this. And then they let you down once and then, you know, you don't, you don't do that again until they've proven to you after three or four times that no, then they really know what they're doing and they know what you expect of them. Anyway, it's a terrific piece. Well, it's prescriptive, so, right? I mean, so if you're currently a second is. lieutenant in TBS, yeah. um, you probably should read that article. You should yeah. read it. Yeah, definitely. That's a great segue because... 
as we come into the late 1800s, right? So proceedings is established. The Naval Institute is organized. You know, um, they're doing good stuff. We've got these essay contests that are going on. And a lot of the, you know, the, the topics of discussion that are in the professional interest, including probably leadership suggestions, are captured in those pages. But there's a gap identified at this point, right? So there's a realization like, hey, there's a body of knowledge here. Um, that we probably need to get into some books, right? Um, at the same time, the Navy's not going to invest in this kind of, this capability. The civilian side press isn't interested in it. So guess what? De facto, it comes along the Naval Institute press. So the Board of Control authorizes, uh, the establishment. They see the win-win. Uh, Naval Institute press basically gets established and becomes the de, de facto university press for the U.S. Naval Academy. And they start to publish these books that are focused on, Hey, let's talk about some of these leadership tips about micromanagement or whatever it is at the time. So um, not only is it books on naval history and kind of more technical matters. Seamanship and navigation. That's right. Yep. Um, but 1902, your first Blue Jackets manual comes out, right? There's a, you know, once again, there's an appetite and an, and an understood need to produce these guidebooks and these professional books to help naval professionals improve. And then that only evolves over time. You create watch officers guides, you create naval leadership. Um, and today, you know, you can see the cadre, you know, and that's one of the rewarding parts of what I'm doing now is, you know, we continue to mature those books, evolve them, uh, align them with service needs and, you know, philosophies and strategies with leadership development. And we've got hundreds of hundreds of books in our Naval Institute press ranging from, I mean, across warfare communities, history, and anything on leadership or management skills you can eat or want. We're, uh, we're constantly seeking to keep those relevant. Uh, looking for authors uh, as well. So, um, and Paul, neighbor- you're the author and editor of the uh, the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, the, yes. the latest version, right? Uh, yes, and then also, uh, you know, in the spring, so the manuscript is in actually copy edited. I just finished up working with the copy editor for the Petty Officer's Guide, so never had that before. So, as I wrote the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, I've always felt this anyhow is there's definitely an appetite. Uh, in that petty officer rank, um, definitely at the E5 level for leadership and management education. The Navy can only provide so much. They only have so much bandwidth and so much resourcing towards it. So in, in, in one way, that's my ability, you know, right, wrong, uh, to be able to give back and continue to shape and improve the naval profession. And then I am, uh, bringing the manuscripts home with my co-author, uh, BMC Phil Knoll on the Coast Guard side. So we will have the Coast Guard. Uh, version of the Petty Officer Guide and the Chief Petty Officer Guide. So we're excited about those. So on the enlisted side, we'll have these continuums that are built that take you from Blue Jackets manual all the way up to, you know, discussing being a CMC, working on Flagstaff. And we're here in Studio P, which is a, in the midst of the USNI press, as you've said, Paul, on the second deck of Beach Hall. I entreat members to thumb check your catalog when you get it. The holiday catalog will be going out soon, and you'll see what Paul is talking about in terms of the diversity of the portfolio. We were just focusing on our reference books, which is the core competency of USNI Press. We do histories like uh, Learning War by Trent Hone, who's been the phenom for the last 24 months. Um, We're going to have Trent on the show again uh, pretty soon here. Um, And then the occasional what we call trade press books like the first novel we published which was hunt for red october in 1984 so yeah and a later novel called punk's war a, later by a novel, guy named ward carroll right yeah. I, my debut was published by the naval institute press in 2001 uh, a wholly uh, incredible experience end to end i'm proud to be in the stable of naval institute press authors um and uh, so this is part of 
the portfolio of the Naval Institute. And then the last sort of new element is Dead Reckoning, which is our graphic novel imprint, which is not quite reinvented, but certainly supplements the offerings coming from the Naval Institute in a very, in fact, the team from Dead Reckoning just got back from Comic-Con. So if you draw that line, you know, it goes from the Naval Institute and Warden to Comic-Con in New York City. That's very exciting. That's impact that Warden could have never imagined, but is wholly in keeping with his intent. So great stuff. All right. So we're running out of time. I I, I would just go back to uh, part of that 18 or 1973 article, the first hundred years of the Naval Institute. And uh, I think this is a great way for, for me to wrap up my comments here. Uh, in its hundred years of existence, the Naval Institute has steadily adhered to its mission, the advancement of scientific, literary, and professional knowledge in the Navy. Advancement, of course, does not mean preserving the status quo. It means progress through the service-wide, indeed, even national and international dissemination of new ideas. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think yesterday I loved your point, uh, Ward. You brought this up, like uh, to keep us relevant and, and adhere to original intent. Like if we brought Warden or the original fifteen together today, what would it look like? You know, what would they do with well, how what would they've they got carry today? Out their mission? That's right. What and means then, would they use? That's right. Um, so, as we continue to evolve and use modern tools of technology and reach and expand the audiences, you know, um, it's exciting to be a part of this team. And then the atmosphere. I see is very similar to that 1873, right? We're reposturing, we're back to peer competition, right? A lot of those same frustrations with resourcing and kind of, you know, organizing, manning and training the Navy to what it needs uh, for what, what thought leaders and people are seeing is the next, uh, you know, what naval warfare looks like. I, th- I think you can't parallel that anymore either. So at once we leverage our heritage, right? So what you just said, in fact, Pete called me on it at the, strategic planning yesterday to, to, to sort of say, make sure that what I meant wasn't we would chuck our history. Yep. And that includes a print version of proceedings right now, which is basically the flagship and continues to be the flagship and is basically the message board, the program of record. So that format isn't going anywhere. And what we're talking about is not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We obviously, as we've talked about for the majority of this episode of the podcast, we're very aware of our history and proud of it in, in all the right ways. Um, but we're not going to just polish the trophy. We don't take that for granted. And that's what the new generation of the proceedings and the periodicals team, you coming aboard, um, and the rest of the team and, and Pete shifting into the next gear with things like the conference center and so forth. You're out to the fleet all the time. I'm out among the people all the time. Bill and I just got back from tailhook. We're basically the, we talk to JOs more than anybody else, um, including some, uh, you know, change agents at centers of excellence who we've called them to action to use the form uh, in its expressed intent. And they're all about it, right? So it's just about awareness. So as you've said, these are exciting times to be part of the staff of the Naval Institute, but further to be a member of the Naval Institute and to use the Naval Institute's forum in, in the way it was intended. So happy birthday, all you guys. This is a great happy day birthday. around yes, here. Happy birthday. And here's to the next 146 years of Naval Institute being the center of excellence and the place where great ideas are teed up and the finest Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard starts. Hoo-yah. Hoo-yah. Victory begins the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.